This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Ruslan, today, we have the returns of she used to be at BFM as a filmmaker there. She is now a content provider. Well, no, producer. Sorry. She's producer. Not, she's, not a, she's not an internet <laughs> company. Um, content producer and a documentary filmmaker. She is Rahma Fauzi. Hi there, Rahma. Hi, happy to be back. It's great to have you. And he is still at BFM. He's a producer in the, the morning run. And he is um, Mikey Gong. Hi, Cam. Hi, Rama. Hello, Mikey. Great to have you. And um, our three topics uh, today are, topic number one is, would you go to a dinner party that teaches you how racist you are? Uh, Topic number two is, what are dreams? And finally, topic number three is, can hopeful science fiction produce beer force for good? Is that right, Mikey? Okay. Build a better society, but... Build a better society, okay. So, uh, Rahma, that snappy title, would you go to a a dinner party that teaches you how racist you are? So I guess this is like what I kind of want to share and talk about. Uh, So recently, um, I read about uh, this organization. It's called Race to Dinner. Uh, It's based in the United States. Um, Essentially, it's a company that aims to open up conversation about subconscious racism over a meal. Um, But the entire experience costs thousands of dollars. um, And this is the catch, like uh, tons of white liberal women are paying for it. So when you're talking about uh, expensive, it's like $2,500 you know, over a meal that you have to pay with like maybe three other people to talk about your subconscious bias and all of that. So uh, this organization is um, uh, is run by Regina um, Jackson, a black woman, and Syrah Rao, a first generation of Indian American. They usually would have like about eight to 10 guests uh, and always liberal white women um, because they said that they are not lost cause yet. And they talk about like internalized racism, like subconscious bias. So some of the conversations would include stuff like, oh, I really want to hire people for diversity because I understand that. Like, you know, they talk, uh, but then how do I want to make sure that like, you know, I'm not tokenizing, da, da, da. So I think it's a good effort. I just... Like it's it's so unique, and I don't know how to kind of like what to make out of it. Um, because I think like what happened, like you know, the moment of society is like so, um, I guess not really blind, but like racism is so internalized that you don't know how to unearth everything anymore. You don't know what's problematic and what's not problematic. And obviously, over the past you know, um, one year with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, this has definitely awakened a certain kind of senses um, among um, the, the the white community. So there's this like I guess like like a room, like a space for these people to like you know talk about this. But I am not sure. I feel like a bit perplexed about it. Is the fact that you are confronting racism? You need to talk about your privilege, but exercising it by being able to pay to learn about the very thing that causes a problem in, in, in the structure of society itself is you paying that much money also. So I, I, I am not sure, like, should you be schooled for a system like that? And should you... Just to be clear, I'll repeat one thing, though. This is happening in the United States. Um, yes, it's right? in the United so it's not- States. It's yeah, not, it's happening here. If you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about doing this, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, <laughs> in Malaysia, <laughs> I guess. I guess. I guess there are a lot of like conversations that can be open. You know, if people would throw me, you know, 
dollars take, for like, only take USD. Yeah. Rahma, when you yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess like it's a question that I would like to ask you guys too. Like, is this a good arrangement? Is this like a? Of course, like it's you know it's it, you know it was um, uh, it was it's not something that they kind of like just pull it pull it out you know because this is like a good business model. But mm-hmm. of course, it comes from somewhere. But would you be comfortable? Paying that much money, or like be paying that money just to you know learn about your internalized racism, like well, is well, that a course well, that you want to take? I guess. Yeah, no, well, being being paid is quite attractive, I must say. But uh, <laughs> no, Mikey, no, no, but paying, but paying. I mean, can I just ask a question, Rama? Why is it women and not men? So um, the founders are women. So based on the articles that I've read, so race students, the reason why they prioritize women is because they think that in the discourse of racism, this white liberal women are the ones that are not necessarily a lost cause yet. So they've been saying that they've been trying to kind of like open this to the white men in general, but, you know, due to the overwhelming votes that um, Trump got from white men, um, they don't think that there's like much room to pivot them from there. So I guess, but it's also like, you know, talks a little bit about like gender and femininity and the fact that women talks about things that like discomfort them and all of that. And this is when one of like, you know, the most interesting thing that I've read is that um, if you have a conversation that it's this uncomfortable in a boardroom in general, you can walk away. But they're saying that they have to do it over dinner because what women are taught to never leave their dinner table if something uncomfortable happened. So at the same time, I'm not sure if that's like, you know, like a really, I don't know. I kind of want to say this is like a sexist perception. Well, yeah. I, so, yeah. So that's I, I, something that I've been thinking about. I, I think that... Uh, sorry, Mikey, yes. Sorry, go no, ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, it sounds vaguely academic. Um, that I'm paying for the privilege of being lectured to or being taught, uh, but it's still in a very semi-academic uh, setting. And it's not as experiential as uh, as I would have expected. It's no, actually I, more of a no, discourse. You, what do you the, think? The, no, actually, according to the article, it is, it is very much uh, experiential. You are being prodded and probed to express, discover your own biases, moments when you have been racist unintentionally or unconsciously racist. So So, it's not... It almost sounds like a therapy group, you know, and you're paying for it. But it must be pointed out, though, that America and the UK, for that matter, are um, very different situations. You have in America, you have this community that calls itself white. um, And these are people who look white and then are then accepted as members of the dominant cultural economic group uh whereas minor- minorities are, are are real minorities i mean the the amount of indians say in the u.s would be i don't know zero point whatever um th- i think the black population in the u.s is about 10 11 percent it's about the same actually as the indian population in malaysia mm. and um so you could you could be a white person and never come into contact with with a, a person of color or the other um but you would see them coming at you in the media or see them on the streets and then you know you so it, it's an attempt to break that cycle what's the intended outcome of of this dinner would it be for these women to to be more conscious about 
race and in, 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 it's it sounds like it's it's a it's meant to be like a cathartic experience of anything you know it's just to express like what they've been feeling so i think there's like a certain you know like you know white privilege like a term that you know um everyone in this you know at least in this call like you're familiar with it's um it's a little bit how to say um so this lady so her name is so Rao, um has said that she grew up in the states and most of her friends were white so she was always like this one minority kid in the group but then she never really had the vocabulary nor people were that willing to listen whenever she talks about how she struggles sometimes and i guess like because you know, um, when you don't name, um, you know, experience certain way, like the term like microaggressions were like not a thing before. So you cannot really say, oh, your food smells bad and like say that that's racist, right? Like I think that was not acknowledged at that time. So I think like she kind of like grew up in that space and realizing that the more you name something, the easier it is to have that conversation. So this is like an effort that she is trying to like do. And she's just like, you know, trying to just like, be honest and willing to call it what it is which is like you know you are able to like walk around here and make those kind of decisions that hurt people around you and not willing to listen is precisely because you know you are of a certain race so i guess this is kind of like the space that she's like trying Mm. to open and like call it as you know what it is but Mm. i just found that 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 concept interesting and it's kind of like want to introduce it and i was just wondering if there's anything in our context that like that uncomfortable that we had to you know, that we had to kind of like switch it to this format in order to like teach people about it and get yeah. people to talk about it. Well, we, we, we must move on. But, uh, you know, folks out there, you should try and check out the article in The Guardian recently. You can Google it. Um, it it's fascinating. And um, I wonder, though, I think a Malaysian version of that would, would probably just end up with everybody participating and saying, oh, you know, typical Indian and oh, Chinese are like that. And... <laughs> And at the end, everyone would sit around and watch episodes of Mind Your Language and <laughs> congratulate themselves on how unracist they are. Um, so I'm uh, going to move on, though, to uh, topic number two, which is what are dreams? Um, it's not like I've done a huge amount of research on this, but uh, I have you know, done readings over the years. And uh, there, are, there are several theories which I'm, I'm going to expand upon. But one thing's absolutely certain about dreams is that there is nothing more boring than listening to somebody tell you about their dreams. But uh, So I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to ask a question about what are dreams. Because dreams over time have always been, have often been considered to be, you know, religious portends. Uh, telling you about the future, messages from loved ones, you know, this kind of like spiritual spirit world um, portal, a portal into a, a different dimension. And then Freud comes along and he introduces the notion of the subconscious and that uh, the dreams are actually um, a, a different part of your mind, the, the subconscious part of your mind, uh, perhaps telling you, but also processing events and uh, experiencing them differently from the way that your conscious mind is developing them. And, um, and, then, and then there's the possibility, which I actually uh, go with, which is that dreams mean nothing. Uh, dreams are the brain just simply processing garbage. Things that have happened in your life is just like throwing bizarre things around. Perhaps it's something suddenly like, you know, your uncle from 50 years ago, you hadn't thought about for years, pops up. And it's just it's just all sorts of rubbish. But also another possibility is that uh, aligned to that is that it's actually the way that the, the mind testing you 
on what would you do if, like with nightmares especially, if you're in a, a crisis situation, what would you do? But your body has been shot, shut down and your mind is um, experiencing terror because you know, we must remember that for most of human history, we were asleep. Uh, being asleep was a dangerous time because, you know, a wild animal come and eat you. So <laughs> you've always got to be ready. Um, so I, I, I'd like to ask you two, what's your experience with dreams? Please don't tell us your dreams, but it, what do you think dreams are? Uh, I don't want to like go academic and start saying that, oh, it's just subconscious thought because everyone knows it. Um, but I think dreams, um, usually what I notice is that it projects some of the things that I know that I've been disturbed about already. So if anything, it's just like, um, it, it, like you're right. Like it's, it feels like a simulation of like a bunch of what ifs. I, and I'm going to, you told me that I don't have to share my dream, but I want to share it anyway. So I'll be like really worried about this one shoot, um, about whether or not it was going to go. And for two nights in a row, I had different dreams. The first night was um, if the shoot is going to go, um, you know, the way that we planned it, this is what's going to happen. And then I was there like running around. And then the following day is just, it felt like I was brainstorming with myself and myself in that dream was giving me an idea of what I could have done if that shoot was not going to go. And then I was like talking about, I was talking out loud to myself about what are the things that I would like to do uh, the moment I wake up, da, 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 da. and then the moment I wake up, I was just like, okay, some of these things are like really interesting. And I mean, they're like not always make sense, but I think this simulations, if anything, is like healing you in a way because it makes it possible that, okay, there will be days that will come after that very day that you that you're gonna like stress stress you out so much, and and it becomes like it, it helps me um honestly um for some reason. But so when you said that, because I've always thought about it as like a subconscious thought, but these are really conscious thoughts, and if anything, it really helped me and my the process of me you know just to continue my life the following day you know mm. despite things that worry me. Okay, okay, uh, Mikey, um, I'm gonna go the boring route and say that uh, you know that dreams are basically your mind's way of actually clearing out stuff uh, and enabling you to actually go into a deeper sleep. So neuro, the latest neuroscience um, says that dreams are actually good. They indicate REM sleep. They're a way of actually uh, your brain decluttering, so to speak. And that's, uh, you know, and it's useful for you to uh, to dream. Uh, as to personally, do I accord any special significance to dreams? Not really. Um, I think it's great when you have a bad, good dream, and uh, not so great when you have a nightmare. Uh, yeah. yeah, but because I I, w I was recently in um, in the UK uh, visiting my mother, and she lives near this uh, village that is now a tiny village, but once upon a time it was one of the biggest pilgrimage sites in in Europe. Certainly in, in England. And it was because a woman uh, had a dream that um, she'd been shown the, the chapel, I believe, in Jerusalem or something where Jesus had done something or other. And so she set about building this um, chapel. And then suddenly people from all over Europe were just walking to this one place called Walsingham. Um, it doesn't happen anymore. But, uh, you know, then there's also the notion that the dream is something that's put into your head by mm -hmm. some some... Uh, outside spiritual authority or something. I, I certainly don't 
think that's the case. Uh, but you two, are you? Uh... Uh, I'm just wondering for creative types, uh, Rama. I think you, I think you're pretty creative. Um, does it? You know, I, I hear about uh, people like artists, uh, writers, authors getting inspiration from dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to believe that that was the case for me, but I can't honestly say it's ever happened. Has, has it been that that yeah. for you? Yeah. Uh... I, I mean, I don't think it's like it, it like inspiration that I can wake up and I like do something, but definitely dreams have this thing in which it will do like, I, you know, like it will go either way. So um, one way that like, is, you know, that I've experienced is that it would not it's necessarily inspire me to finish something that I've been working on or whatever, but it rejuvenates the way I think, I think sometimes. And um, so for example, like, you know, um, and, and I'm going to like go a bit more academic here, but like, so for example, sometimes um, when I was like editing uh, a documentary film and um, I had to document like a pain and the internal struggle of a refugee and I was experiencing something different, um, but it kind of like evokes a certain, like a painful feeling that I was, I thought that I was already empathizing with, um, with, you know, with my subject or whatever, but it allows me to like think about um, pain from like my own perspective in that sense instead of like just from someone else so I think it's not necessarily straightforward it's not necessarily this is what the dream would help you with but it, it's a way to rejuvenate and I think like everyone should just like you know wake up like each time they have a dream they should wake up and just like throw a party or whatever because dreams should rejuvenate you that much okay, um, but that's I, how I see it yeah, yeah but I, I don't uh, personally remember or even attempt to remember my dreams I just, I just think they're so irrelevant. I mean, they're fun. They're fun while I'm ha- they're happening, but they're so they, fine. Can okay, I give but you they the, have no can, meaning. I mean, can do, I give you the boring science behind it? Go on. Then. Go on. <laughs> it's a good thing if you don't remember your dreams. Okay. Why? Uh, well, some of the latest research uh, I read says that you're not actually meant to remember your dream. If you do remember your dreams, that means they've been quite vivid and they've kind of interfered with your sleep. Mm. So after. So some, a lot of us will remember our dreams for a short while as soon as we get up, but as the day goes by after one or You're two right. hours. right. Yeah, yeah. I, I usually would only remember it, like, it only, like, expire me for, like, the first, an hour, first hour or so. Right. I, however, remember that when I was a kid, I used to remember my dreams for, like, days or, like, m- hours after it happened. Is there any reason to that? Like, as to, like, why adults don't remember dreams as vividly anymore? Oh, well, I, I, I don't know about the reasons, but babies dream um, a lot longer than old people. You, you, it goes down to about a fifth of the amount of time that you're asleep. You dream less as you get older because you have less stuff to sort out. Um, <laughs> Are you sure about that, Kev? <laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, you, you don't have to prepare for things. When you're a baby, it's like, I saw something weird today. Everything's weird, of course. And it's like, what the hell did that mean? Um, but, but by the time you're 90, it's like, you know, whatever. So anyway, we've got to move on though. Uh, so dreams, we're all pretty much on the same page there with the dreams. I was hoping that somebody would be like, no, it means, you know. Uh, okay, so, but in a moment, uh, we're going to return with uh, science fiction and um, here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, Rahma Pauzi, and now Mikey Gong. Is hopeful science fiction uh, a possible uh, r- road to good? You said that completely uh, wrong, Mikey. You have to tell us again. <laughs> that's okay. 
Uh, I was wondering whether actually hopeful science fiction could actually build a better society. And I just came from actually two genres of science fiction that have been, that's come to my attention. One is called Hope Punk, which is science fiction that's directed towards a more optimistic view of the future and, and uh, you know, a, a brighter tomorrow. And the opposite is something like grim, dark, uh, dark, uh, dystopian, oppressive. Um, a good example would be Game of Thrones in the fantasy genre. Uh, maybe altered carbon in sci-fi. So I'm more interested in hope punk because dystopian science fiction seems to be the more, more prevalent, uh, you, know, uh, you know, starting from Fritz Lang's Metropolis back in 1927 uh, and, you know, uh, the popularity of, uh, you know, of movies like Blade Runner, etc. Science fiction tends to veer towards uh, a dystopian or a dark theme, whereas optimistic science fiction is sometimes seen as um, uh, banal, simplistic, you know, and things like Star Trek, for example. But I remember Star Trek giving me a lot of hope when I first watched it. It talked about a society that was multicultural, that explored space, that overcame its uh, base instincts for warfare and oppression. And subjugated all of it for the greater good of going out and exploring planets. Of course, the fact that they all spoke English. Yeah, for the white man. For the white <laughs> yeah. man, like a gong. And, you know, uh, didn't occur to me, but then again, in my defense, I was yeah. uh, nine or ten, so... Captain Kirk was not an Indian flower. <laughs> so I'd like to ask, are you both an aficionados of science fiction? And if so, what do you tend to lean towards? Um, more optimistic or more a more pessimistic view of science fiction? Um, I really like the pessimistic ones. I, I, <laughs> I really like the one that screws up my head a little, honestly. Because, um, I, I, I mean, because <laughs> I remember, like, okay, would you call, would you consider, what's that series on Netflix that, like, that Black Mirror, yeah. Um, mm. Would you call that science fiction? Is that considered science fiction at all? I would consider it science fiction. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think like it kind of like gives you some sort of a um, like a certain views about like possibilities, and I think like or maybe we gravitate towards um, you know uh, tendencies that would like push us into thinking about things that um, we're not unthinkable, uh, you know, and, and possibilities are unthinkable, but in a much more negative um, direction, hmm. but then taking it over to kind of like convey certain, you know, positivity, optimistic views. However, I do want to think that I don't always come out of this, you know, shows feeling like, oh my God, the world is like bleak. I think hmm. that's like one thing that's like different when it comes to this understanding because, um, old, you know, pessimistic narratives don't necessarily lead to pessimistic thinking um it's just a way um is it you know a representation of the world that someone else gives us that allows us to like venture to that world but then like informs us to think about you know the way that we see our own world in a positive or like you know um non-positive ways and um funny enough like none of the black mirror um episodes for example and i love the series and i know a lot of people out there really love it um I don't necessarily come out of it feeling like disturbed or whatever. It's just like, wow, that's what's going to happen. 
And then on some episodes that are like really dark, I would just like, you know, steer myself away from it and just like, so that's what humans are capable of doing that humbles me and gives me like a ton of humility, you know? So I think, um, I think we should see the richness in, 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 I guess like in narratives, in the cultural, uh, in, in fiction and all of that, like in, as a way to like push you towards thinking of something else, something new. Mm. Um, and the way you think about something new kind of like informs more about you than it is about that fiction, I think. Well, well sure. I mean, fiction, science fiction is always, always a product of the times in which they were created. Uh, they're not written in the future. Mm. <laughs> they're written in the present about the future. But uh, Mikey, I want to ask, ask you because um, I, I know science fiction movies, I read a couple of things, but yeah, but you're much more of an aficionado. The the kind of hope punk, is it? Do you say hope? Hope punk, punk yep. Hope punk thing. Are they um, satisfying pieces of storytelling? Are they gripping? Because you know the negative, uh, not negative, but more uh, dark things can be very thrilling because you've got to save the world from this. You're going to right. I agree. Yeah. Katniss, uh, what's her name? Everdeen. Yeah. In in the Hunger Games, she's she's not just going down to the shops to buy something. I mean, she has to go kill everybody <laughs> to survive. Um, and, 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 and now in, in Myanmar, you know, the, the, the mm. three-finger salute, salute in, in from the Hunger Games is, is commonly done. So are, 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 the, are the hopeful type things, are they, are they satisfying, exciting dramas? Uh, that's a great question. And Hope Punk has been criticized in some parts for sometimes um, negating the human condition or the human uh, tendency to repeat history, uh, you know, in a more bleak, in a, in a bleaker, more pessimistic sense. So even if you, uh, to use the, an, an example of Hunger Games, even even if once you overthrow the oppressors, what ha- and what's to prevent you from being an oppressor as well? Uh, so hope punk has sometimes been taken a bit of a beating for. Uh, being a little bit Pollyannish, but I don't think it is. I think it's just basically pointing out the narrow, you know, the possibility of um, a way out for things to improve. Uh, for example, uh, you know, and a, a great example is this: is that uh, we're not, and Hope Punk doesn't deny that that and, or, you know, and that war will continue in some sense, but maybe just maybe certain elements like scientific advances will actually heal more people than than than, than, than kill does yeah. that make sense in that? yeah no absolutely i mean mm. that's kind of perhaps more how reality is but okay. but like with dreams you know the the, the reason yeah. why dreams are dreams can be exciting if you're put into a crisis right. and your brain and your body are trying to understand it and comprehend how do we get out of this crisis you know you're asking yourself with the Katniss thing, it's like, what would I do? Mm. Um, I mean, I would die straight away. <laughs> it could also be, I think, I think it could also be, and I don't know whether or not this like constitutes as like, you know, hope punk, but the settings could be very bleak, but the journey is really positive, you know? And I guess that's kind of like what you were suggesting there, Cam and Mikey. Mm. That, that's a great point, Rama. I was thinking about Star Wars as a prime example of that. A totally bleak setting uh, and when our heroes go on the hero's journey and uh, the Cambellian hero's journey, uh, there's a reason why it's, 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 and the uh, movie was entitled A New Hope, yeah. right? So I, I wonder, I... With, with Star Wars, I don't, I don't really know actually if George Lucas 
thought that there were going to be other Star Wars films because the first Star Wars thing would, would fit your, your narrative perfectly, Mikey. It's a complete encapsulation of hopeful, conclu- everything's happy at the end. They've sorted everything out. Then it's a huge success. So the filmmakers then have to make it dark. The mm. Empire Strikes Back. Back, correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then they have to inject negativity because you have so that they can have another fight mm. um, oh. for another day. But, but if, if you are thinking of a one-off, if, yeah. if Star Wars were a one-off, then you're done. That's a good example, yeah. yeah. But I, I, when you're talking about that, I, I, I think back to the first ever piece of na- um, narrative science fiction. There was Jules Verne, but then there was really H.G. Wells mm. and The War of the Worlds. That's right. Back in 1890-something or other. And what he did, which was really mind-blowing for his audience, was he, he wrote a piece where Martians come down and invade, but he wrote about the, the planet, the, the, the society they're in, he, in real realism, and how then there's panic, absolute mm-hmm. panic, and people are crushing each other, trying to get away. What he was really doing was, okay, you, you are very satisfied with the world that you live in, but imagine how brittle it is and how it can fall apart so quickly and you can become savages when, if something from outside happened. And really, the, the, the story that we watch in the movies, consequently, is about these aliens coming down. It's all, uh, but when you read the book, it's just about the breakdown of society. And that's the scary part. Yeah, which is why, um, Robin's a good point. <clears throat> uh, most people identify with the pessimistic side of science fiction because it speaks of um, certain <clears throat> fears or issues that, that are around them. I mean, Metropolis, for example, dealt with class inequality and industrialization, as many things. And current science fiction deals with the threat of artificial intelligence supplanting humans. It's a great story, and, and, but it gives an, a salient voice to our internal fears about uh, being irrelevant in a sense, uh, which is why, to be, to be, to be fair, um, Grim Dark is actually a lot more compelling at times compared right. to, to Hope Punk. Well, to, to finish off then, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask the original question back to you, Mikey. Mm-hmm. Can um, hopeful science fiction, do you think that it can actually help us create um, a, a better society? Absolutely. Yeah? I, uh. I think uh, have to be and to be on the side of, of site naivety here and believe that we can actually create a better future uh, and, uh, and drag ourselves out of the pit, so to speak, even if it doesn't come true, even if we don't hit the stars we'll, and we'll hit the moon, mm. to paraphrase. Wow. Mikey Gong, episode four, The New Hope. New hope. Uh, <laughs> 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 so... Um, Okay, so we, we're going to move on now to uh, the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be of interest, and Rahma Pauzi goes first. Okay, yeah. Uh, so uh, I would like to recommend a new book uh, from Iman Publication. Um, full disclosure, uh, that's where I work at right now. Um, and uh, there's this new book called Kiko, 
um, and Kekok means awkward. It's in Malay. Really fascinated me. So it's written by Akif Basri, who's a psychologist, and he's like really famous on Twitter. Uh, and apparently, pub- the publishing house kind of like scouted him. I think like probably like last year or something. And the first book, um, this is his first book, and his first book with Iman. Um, it's about how to be a good listener. Um, uh, and it's targeted to youth. And um, what I really like about uh, the book was that um, although I'm not sure whether or not I was the target audience, but I learned so much about how to com- communicate and be a really good listener online. And I think like when we talk about like communication books, right? Uh, in bookstores, a lot of it revolves around, I guess, um, like corporate communication, how to communicate successfully in your workplace, you know? So, so this is quite interesting. Interesting. So they would even like talk about how to deal with people who ghost you, how to deal with being gaslighted um, online, how to deal when you get double tick, you know, so it's, it's really about um, when is it okay to ghost people. Um, and because it's in Malay, and I'm seeing it, uh, I don't always like read um, stuff in Malay unless it's like fiction. Um, but nonfiction, I very rarely read anything that's written in Malay um, over the past few years. Um, but this really allows me to kind of like see it as like a 20-year-old, 25-year-old Rahma. And um, I think it's really good read and it's written really, really clearly. Um, and uh, if you just kind of like, you know, want to, I guess, polish your, you know, Malay reading in nonfiction, um, Keiko is like a really good book for that. And and like, yeah, I, I think it like teaches me and I, I didn't expect that I was going to be that big of a fan of the book. And um, what's the name of the book and the author again? Yeah, so it's Keiko by Akif Basri, um, who is a psychologist. So, yeah. Yeah, I follow him on Twitter, actually. He's very good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. got he's, lots yeah. of followers. Yeah, he's got lots of followers. And, and, and last point, I think it's like really interesting because we tend to think about you know, how to communicate clearly, but we don't always think about how to be a good listener. And then Akif argues that mental health is going to be like one of the biggest problems that we have to face as a society over the next 10 years. And we have to start by being good listeners first because there will be a lot of people who require help from us. And by being a good listener can be a foundation of like a democratic society. So his argument was really thorough in that sense. And it's like really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like him on Twitter. He's, uh, he's good. And, and also if you, if you start reading the responses, you can tell that there there are so many people out there in this country who are are really concerned about mental health, and, and so when you find a voice that kind of, you know, it, it's not patronizing, it's not finger pointing and everything, it's just a it's calm presence. Uh, yeah, he's good. So okay, so uh, check out that book. Uh, my recommendation is uh, it's a bit niche. Um, I've been away from Malaysia for two months. I had to go to the UK for an emergency, and uh, and as I am speaking, I am in my hotel quarantine, and my last day, tomorrow, I can finally get home after two months. My mother, actually, when she first came to Malaysia, or Malaya, back in 1957, she came by ship, and um, it's taken me longer to get back than, than she took on when she came by ship. And so my recommendation is, as I say, very niche, it's a Facebook group called... Um, MQ, I'll have to I'll spell it out in my head again. Uh, Malaysian Quarantine Support Group, MQSG. Uh, wow. Started up by, by a guy called Ed Adib. And um, it, lots of people have been, been joining this thing because it, it's just a really wonderful support group where people are sharing information. And what I love about it is that, you know, when Malaysians, um, 
to, to witness whenever, and it happens so often, whenever Malaysians take it upon themselves to, to fill that gap, to mm. create a support group, you know, NGOs and charities, et cetera. But um, people have just gone here. I mean, thousands of Malaysians and foreigners have been having to go in another country. And I, I must say, actually, that the um, Ministry of Health and the, uh, I guess, working with immigration have actually done a pretty streamlined job. But it's still very confusing. And um, so this uh, support group, it's just really wonderful to sort of see Malaysians coming together and sort of, well, let's sort ourselves out. Let's find our own solutions. And uh, it's been very helpful to me. And tomorrow I finally go home. Yay. Congrats, Cam. Well <laughs> I can't wait. I want to go home. What are you going to eat the first thing? <laughs> I, I haven't even thought of that. I just, I don't know. I, I just like... I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Mikey, what's your recommendation? Okay, I've got a strange recommendation. Uh, I can recommend bird watching. It's something I've never ever done before. And it only came to my attention because one of my colleagues, or at least two of them are really interested in it. And I, and I asked myself, why have I never been interested in it? Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, at all. It's just it's never been something that just crossed my my purview of interest, and which led me to think about this. Birds are a wonderful way of connecting us back to nature uh, in the city and in our urban setting. And the absence of birds may be a sign that we've become too urbanized, and we're starting and being detached from our our roots, so to speak. So after coming to that uh, realization, whenever I see a bird now, I'm actually really happy to see it. I want to know what it, uh, you know, and, you know, and what, what genus it belongs to, uh, how it sounds, where it lives, what it does. And because it's also a sign of something else, a bit more, something that's in line with what I was talking about today, Cam, something positive. If you see birds, it means that you're growing more trees, and green trees is a good thing for us. So, yeah, I know it sounds a bit strange, but uh, no, it's strange at all. Yeah, bird watching. But are you are you doing it seriously, or is it just like, oh, there's a bird? I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, are you like right. going to places? Are you recording all the birds, photographing? Okay, right now I'm not taking it seriously, but I'm more aware of birds than I ever have been in my mm. life. I'll actually turn around and look and go, wow. What, you know, when there's a bird here, what kind of bird is it? How often do I see it? So mm. I think it just starts from there. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not recommending you go buy a big, thick book on uh, the birds of Peninsula Malaysia <laughs> by some, oni you know, ornithologist. But there is a book and, called that. And a yeah, there is that, actually. <laughs> saw it it's a real classic. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> and, you know, I was going to uh, take it, but I don't think the hotel would be very happy about right. that. So... <laughs> <laughs> are you Rafa, um, have you are you a bird have you a bird watching so 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 this is funny so i have two questions i have a, i have two things to say one is a question from mikey and the other one is just you know something i wanted to share was that when i grew up uh so my grandfather on my dad's side he's like like an adventure man and adventure man mm -hmm. so he um loves walking around um my neighborhood um and he's from penang so sometimes he would just like you know spend about three weeks with my family and he would walk around and he would have this like little whistle thing that he would carve out of wood on his own and he would start, start calling like, you know, birds. And he would point out like, you know, all 
these birds around my house. I'm, I live like next to like a small um, jungle. And, um, and that was like, when you mentioned that, I, like, you know, right now I, I don't notice birds as much, but growing up, um, I remember it was a big part of my life and it was mm. a calmer life and it was a nicer life. And my first pet was a bird too. Mm. Um, yeah. But my question to you though, Mikey, like mm. how much of a, you know, like variation of species that you're able to like observe in KL really? And is that even like a possibility for, you know, to pick up, to pick that up as a hobby in the city? Okay. Uh, sadly, um, my, uh, my, my degree of uh, variation goes to this. That's a bird, and that's not, a, and it's not a chicken. And that's about as far as it goes at this point in time. Oh, that's so real. I'm trying to educate myself, knowledge. but it's, an uphill. <laughs> it's not a chicken. <laughs> What's that in Latin? I wish. <laughs> uh, but I, I do know that um, uh, there are a few people from, um, you know, a few BFMers, uh, I think Shaoning, um, mm. kind of into that. Uh, Shazana is also quite into that, um, like the host of yep. Pressing Matters and also Diana Mustak. So, yeah, there are quite a few of them in, in BFM. Yep. Well, Mikey, I think that's fantastic to go bird watching. But if I was going to make this into a piece of fiction, I would say you you were going out one day to look at some birds, but there's been a, a, a chemical spill in, in Sungai Selangor. Oh, my and, God. And, and, and the birds ah. have been, like, mutated, and then they're mad killer birds, and they attack you, and you have to fight them off. And will he succeed or not? You see, it's much more exciting. And that would be sorry. Which is exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and then, a, and then a, a massive mad pterodactyl comes out of the forest because it's been it's been living lurking there for millions of years but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about movie rights later um so uh well great you should go bird watching um with mikey gong and uh, that brings us to the end of this week's show and only remains me now to thank special guests rahma pausi thank you so much for having me great to have you back and mikey gong thank you for having me ken Wonderful. And myself, Cam Raslan, who has returned to Malaysia hey, and will be free tomorrow. So uh, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.